This is episode 461 of the AWS podcast, released on July 18, 2021. Podcast confirmed. Welcome to the official AWS podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS podcast. So I'm Alicia here with you. Great to have you back. And I'm joined by Nikki Stone. G'day, Nikki. How you doing? Hi, Simon. Happy to be here as always. It is good to have you here. It's been a couple, so uh, good that we've got the team back together. <laughs> yep. I'm sure you miss me on July 4th. Always. And we, uh, we have uh, a bunch of updates. Not as big a show in terms of updates today because uh, we're recording these pretty close together, which is good, back on schedule again. But we are going to riff on some pretty interesting topics afterwards. So stay tuned for that. But firstly, let's start with the topic of analytics. Amazon Athena adds parameterized queries to improve reusability and security. So today, you can now save time and eliminate errors by converting your queries that have frequently modified criteria, things like date filters or aggregation periods, into parameterized queries that serve multiple use cases. It's also really useful for developers to use them to safeguard against SQL injection risks and also to simplify application integration that generates SQL based on users' selection. This is now available in select, CTAS, and insert into queries in through the Athena console, API, and SQL clients as well. Awesome. Moving on to the topic of application integration, uh, this one I'm particularly excited about. A workflow studio has been announced, and it is a new low-code visual workflow designer for AWS Step Functions. Uh, yes, I have written so many different state machines and step functions, and I'm so excited for this new... <laughs> now you can draw them. Yeah, this drag-and-drop interface. If you've ever struggled to write a state machine for step functions, uh, it's now super easy to do so. Uh, so it's just a, it's a nice little drag-and-drop interface uh, and exposes all the capabilities of step functions in an easy-to-use low-code interface. You can drag-and-drop flow and task states onto the canvas and then configure states and data transformations using built-in forms while your workflow definition is composed in real time. If you're new to Step Functions, Workflow Studio, of course, is going to provide you with the easiest way to build your first workflow that delivers value. And if you're a longtime Step Functions user like me, you can use Studio to quickly prototype new workflows and share them with others. You can also use your prototypes as the starting point for local development in conjunction with the toolkit for VS Code, which I love. Um, which hopefully reduces the time spending building the structure of your state machine. I am so excited to get my hands on this. It's definitely on my list, my running list of what can I play with next, which is just never ending. Moving on here, AWS Lambda now supports Amazon MQ for RabbitMQ as an event source. So this allows customers to quickly and easily build applications that are triggered from messages in their RabbitMQ queue. And Amazon MQ, just as a reminder, is our managed message broker service for Apache ActiveMQ and RabbitMQ. Makes it easy to set up and operate message brokers in the cloud. Then you can easily now build Lambda functions that are invoked based on messages posted to Amazon MQ for RabbitMQ brokers without needing to create and manage a consumer application that monitors MQ queues for updates. So the Lambda is invoked when the number of messages reaches the specified batch size or the payload exceeds six megabytes. Lambda will manage connectivity with the Amazon MQ message broker on your behalf, including managing authentication, authorization, scaling, monitoring, and failure handling. And lastly for this topic, Amazon MQ for RabbitMQ now supports the consistent hash exchange type. Uh, so you can now use the consistent hash exchange type on your Amazon MQ for RabbitMQ brokers. And this exchange type uses consistent hashing to uniformly distribute messages across queues, 
Consistent hash exchanges are useful in applications like transaction processing to maintain the proper order of dependent messages while scaling up the number of consumers. Moving on to the topic of business applications, an interesting update to the Amazon Chime SDK. It's now added media capture pipelines to enable the capture of meeting, video, audio, and content stream. So starting now, developers can capture the contents of their Amazon Chime SDK meeting and save them to S3 and the S3 bucket of your choice. And it enables all those components, as I mentioned, to be saved in five second segments and directly delivers them along with the meeting events and data messages to the developer's designated S3 bucket. This is very nifty because uh, it gives you the ability to catch a single stream of the active speaker video along with the combined meeting audio. And by request, developers can choose to capture individual video tile streams instead of the active speaker video stream with a separate combined media audio stream. Also, you can request to only capture the combined meeting audio. So lots of choices there. And Nikki and I are having a brief chat uh, before we started the podcast and she was explaining to me how easy streaming is. Um, so, <laughs> so uh, oh, is that this what is, I said, Simon? <laughs> Moving on to the topic of compute, Amazon EC2 adds resource identifiers and tags for VPC security groups. So you can now manage your VPC security groups using the assigned rule IDs and resource tags. So this makes automation and management easier. And a quick update on the topic of databases. Amazon RDS for Oracle now supports Oracle Management Agent version 13.5 for Oracle Enterprise Manager Cloud Control 13CR5. This now means that it communicates with your Oracle management service to provide monitoring information, and it means you get access to all the latest cool and groovy capabilities. Moving on to my favorite topic, developer tools, one quick update. You can now easily enable Amazon DevOps Guru across your organization with Quick Setup. Uh, so Quick Setup, Systems Manager Quick Setup, has enabled uh, support for Amazon DevOps Guru, which enables you to set up Guru across accounts and regions in your organization with a few clicks. And of course, by setting up Amazon DevOps Guru, you can identify any operational issue long before it impacts your customers. It's a really cool service, actually. Definitely check it out. Very nice. Onto the topic of end-user computing, Amazon AppStream 2.0 adds support for real-time audio video using a web browser. So this supports the real-time audio video by seamlessly redirecting local webcam video input to AppStream 2.0 streaming sessions using a web browser. Now, previously, you could only use the client for Windows for this. Now, because you can use the web browser, all kinds of users can take advantage of this from a broad range of client devices, including Windows PCs, Macs, Chromebooks, and Thin Clients. And it means you can collaborate without having to leave your AppStream 2.0 session and you don't need to manage another client, which is very nifty. Streaming again. This podcast is taunting me today. I know. This is a theme here of streaming. Yeah. Um, it's on my brain. Moving on to the topic of machine learning, Amazon Kendra has released a web crawler to enable website search. So as a reminder, Kendra is an intelligent search service powered by machine learning, which enables organizations to provide relevant information to customers and employees when they need it. And you can now use the Amazon Kendra web crawler to index and search web pages. So that means you can use Kendra to search internally and externally across all the websites that maybe there would be some search text found in using Kendra's intelligent search. So organizations can now provide relevant search results to users seeking answers to their questions. For example, product specification detail that resides on a support website or a company travel policy information that's listed on an intranet webpage. 
Moving on to the topic of management and governance, the AWS distro for open telemetry adds support for container metrics in Amazon CloudWatch Container Insights, which is itself in preview. Now, this enables customers to easily collect container metrics and analyze them along with the other metrics in Amazon CloudWatch. And with this launch, you can use the ADOT connector to collect infrastructure metrics such as CPU, memory, disk and network status from EKS and Kubernetes clusters running on EC2. And it gives you the same experience as the Amazon CloudWatch agent. You can also use the AWS distro for open telemetry collector to collect Prometheus workload metrics from AWS AppMesh, Nginx, Memcached, Java JMX, and HAProxy from clusters running on EKS and ECS using and use the pre-built dashboards in CloudWatch for analysis and triaging. And you can configure and customize what metrics and dimensions are set to CloudWatch, which means you can reduce the volume of data coming in and the cost to manage that as well. A whole bunch of cool stuff there. AWS Systems Manager Application Manager now supports full lifecycle management of AWS CloudFormation templates and stacks. So this is really useful because now you can discover and manage applications across multiple AWS services like AWS Launch Wizard, Service Catalog App Registry, Resource Groups, EKS, ECS. This new feature provides customers with a ready-to-use solution to manage the lifecycle of CloudFormation templates and stacks without having to set up S3 or version control systems for template management. So this gives you a whole bunch of capability in all AWS regions where Systems Manager is offered. And finally, AWS App Config now enables customers to compare two application configuration versions. It's always important to know what you're running. Uh, so now you can do side by side. Now, this is using AWS App Config, which is a feature of AWS Systems Manager. And this highlights the differences between the change configuration values in the two versions and helps developers and DevOps professionals understand how the configuration data has changed over time. And it adds additional safety features when deploying the intended configuration values to mitigate the risk of any application outages. This is for that classic situation where you're sitting with someone else and you're debating why something just broke and you say, but I haven't changed anything. <laughs> it's like, well, now we can prove it. <laughs> Love that. Uh, moving on to the topic of front-end and mobile, I'm particularly excited about this one too. Amplify allows you to mix and match authorization modes in Data Store. So Data Store provides uh, front-end developers the ability to build real-time apps with offline capabilities by storing data on device, and then of course, automatically synchronizing that data to the cloud and across devices on an internet connection. I use it in plenty of my apps, and previously you actually only could do it with one authorization mode, but now you can configure authorization rules visually using Amplify Admin UI, or of course, by editing your GraphQL schema, using the CLI, and you can define different role-based auth rules per data model. So who can access what in your app? The new authorization capabilities allow you to mix and match data access rules for anyone, any signed in user, specific users, and user groups. A good example of this is in a blog app, users who visit the app can read the post, but only users part of the writers group have permission to create and update blog posts. Really excited about that. I'm gonna go update all of my applications after this. Uh, and lastly for this topic, Amplify Admin UI now supports existing Amazon Cognito user pools and identity pools. So you can now import your existing Cognito user pools and identity pools to your Amplify app and take advantage of authorization scenarios for your data model and manage users and groups directly from the admin UI. Uh, when Cognito user pools is linked, you can reference the import user pool when defining auth rules on your data model. And this allows you to configure your multi-platform app to have separate app client IDs for each platform, i.e. web and mobile. 
You'll also be able to use Import Incognito resources to authorize user access to fields, tables in the admin UI's data model, use the admin UI to manage users and groups instead of having to log in through the console, and use the imported auth resource across Amplify environments. Moving on to the topic of networking and content delivery. AWS lowers data processing charges for AWS Private Link. This is great. Effective July 1st, 2021, we are reducing the data processing charges for VPC interface endpoints powered by AWS Private Link. This is a new tiered pricing and it will reduce the cost for accessing high volume data intensive services over AWS Private Link. Now, prior to this change, it was a flat rate of uh, one cent per gig. Uh, now it is on a sliding scale based upon first petabyte, next four petabytes, and anything over five petabytes, and it slides all the way down to uh, 0.004 of a dollar. So, uh, yeah, I, I, once I get beyond two, you know, once we're beyond cents, it makes it hard to say. <laughs> so it's cheaper, it's <laughs> which is cheaper. exciting. Amazon CloudFront has announced new APIs to locate and move alternate domain names or C names, which is nice. So this is list conflicting aliases and associate aliases API calls that help locate and move alternate domain names if you encounter the C name already exists error code. These let you see which distribution has the C name and move the C name to a target distribution as long as the source distribution is in the same account or if the source distribution in another account is disabled. To move a C name between accounts when the source distribution is still enabled, you still have to contact support and follow the listed steps, but this gives you some automation to make it a bit easier. Awesome. Moving on to the topic of security, identity, and compliance, the AWS Firewall Manager now supports central monitoring of VPC routes for the AWS Network Firewall. So the AWS Firewall Manager allows customers to centrally monitor route configurations for the network firewall and get alerts on routes non-compliant with their configuration. With this launch, customers can now monitor VPC routes to ensure traffic egressing through Internet Gateway is inspected by the network firewall deployed by Firewall Manager in each VPC. Customers can get alerted on route configurations that are non-compliant, such as routes that bypass firewall inspection or routes that lead to asymmetric traffic and get suggestions to remediate these routes. To get started, you can use the same firewall manager security policy you use for configuring the network firewall today through the firewall manager console or API. And once you've identified the rules to deploy and the accounts and VPCs to deploy the firewalls in, you can choose to monitor those VPC routes that are relevant to the network firewalls and the VPCs where they're deployed. Once the policy is configured, the firewall manager will monitor the routes between the subnets and the internet gateway for every VPC where the network firewall is deployed. And then from there, the firewall manager will automatically surface any VPC routes and route tables that are non-compliant with your intended configuration. And at the same time, you'll also get suggestions to remediate the route configurations to bring them into compliance. Pretty awesome feature for firewalls. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Moving on to the topic of storage, there's a new digital course, Amazon S3 Business Continuity and Disaster Recovery, and this is a free digital course. It's an advanced course, uh, 50 minutes long, which will help you learn how to implement a business continuity and disaster recovery plan for your S3 implementation. It's designed for cloud architects, storage architects, developers, and operations engineers, and it has interactive lessons and a quiz to check your knowledge. And also, AWS Storage Gateway has added support for AWS Private Link for Amazon S3 and Amazon S3 Access Points. If you use Amazon S3 File Gateway for your on-premises gateway, this could be VMware, Microsoft Hyper-V, Linux kernel-based virtual machines, or AWS Storage Gateway hardware appliances, you can now create a private connection from your gateway directly to Amazon S3 without the need for a HTTP proxy. 
You can also now use Amazon S3 access points instead of bucket names to map file shares, enabling more access controls for applications connecting to AWS Storage Gateway file shares. You can easily add hundreds of access points without needing to worry about managing access through a single bucket policy that spans hundreds of use cases. And using S3 access points in your file shares, you can create file shares to share data sets with policies tailored for the specific application. This is all kind of good and makes things a lot easier. Now, Nikki, we have had a shorter episode today because, uh, as I mentioned at the start of the show, we'd done some recordings close together and we're amusing with what to do with a little bit of the extra time, not all the time, but some of the time. And we're going to talk about a couple of topics. And the first one is your development environment, because uh, I think it's always interesting to hear about how people build and you are a builder and you build all the time. And I, I believe, if I understand correctly, that you've decided that having one IDE is just not enough. It's not right Talk now. Talk us through how you build. <laughs> what do you uh, use to build? I use anywhere between three to four IDEs on a daily basis, actually. So I got IntelliJ running right now on my machine, <laughs> and then I have Xcode, and then I have VS Code, and then uh, occasionally I have CLine, depending on what I have to do that day. Um, but... Yeah, at any given time, I'm interfacing with three different programming languages and build systems. And so I have to have three different IDEs because it's just easier. It's just better that way. It's just yeah, each but, IDE but how, is like how, meant for that. But how is it easier in as, in as much as I get that the, the IDE is built for the, the language or, or sort of best suits the language, but... Now, developers are very passionate and somewhat religiously attached to their IDE because it's like it, it optimizes their own productivity. How do you find jumping between console to console and, and not sort of losing your flow? Well, so I'm, I'm code generating, right? So I'm writing code that generates other code. So I might be in one IDE writing that code generation code, and then I might generate it, and then I'd be in another IDE testing it or running it or playing with it. And then I might be in a third IDE adjusting, you know, one of the layers of the dependencies of the code that was generated. So it like it doesn't really disturb my flow as much as it sounds like it might, just because of what I'm actually doing, um, I can flow in between IDE to IDE and know exactly where I am and what, what I went there to do. Gotcha. Like so it's part of the process. It kind of gives you context. Exactly. Like if I'm in one IDE, I know what I'm working on, right? I know I'm I'm working on the code generation code. And then if I, if I build there, right, then I need to go find the other IDE to go see what I've built because otherwise I have no idea what I built. And then, you know, when I'm in the other IDE, then I'm testing and then I discover, okay, wait, we have a bug somewhere deep down beneath. Mm, and then mm. I have to open a third IDE to go fix that, that bug in that, you know, uh, not code generated, but rather handwritten layer that exists in another language somewhere. So it's like... It's just, it's a very complex coding environment that I'm working in right that's, now. That's but I, I am. <laughs> that's all I want to talk yeah, about. Yeah, I am very. <laughs> well, I actually, what's cool is that uh, my product will be launching very soon. So we will actually be able to talk about it. Yes, we can do a reveal. Hopefully by the fall. Yes. We'll actually be able to talk about explicitly what I'm doing. Exactly. Instead of talking in circles around it. But it's, it's interesting. So you, you're using multiple IDEs, whereas, whereas I'm. Because most of my development these days is what I would term rough and ready or agricultural. Um, I'm a sublime text user and that, that oh does my. the job for me. It's kind of like, oh my. it's like a Swiss army knife. Yeah. That, I used to use sublime like a long time ago. That feels like a six years ago thing. <laughs> then then <laughs> well, VS Code came along and company and it's up to the latest versions version for it's come out and it, it does everything I need and it's pluggable and extendable and 
it's familiar and just just works. That's like VS Code. <laughs> like I feel like I switched over from Sublime to VS Code and then I never looked back because then I learned all the shortcut yeah. commands on the keyboard and yeah. then once you know those, you just can't leave. Like yeah. it's over. Exactly. That's that familiarity. Yeah. And what about your your approach to development? Are you a test-driven developer or how do you like to, to tackle problems? Uh, generally, I'm not a test-driven developer, although I will say with code generation, sometimes it's actually easier to generate a test with what the working code should look like uh, before you write it. So it's it's like occasionally based, but usually when I write code, I like to actually build something with the thing that I wrote to test it instead of writing a unit test. So like the unit test will come after as like another assurity check, but I'll actually build something with it like a customer would and try to use it before I like, you know, PR the code. And how, how frequently are you committing your code? Are you a, are you a fastidious regular committer or you are, I probably left it too long and now I don't know where I'm up to in terms of what I want to keep and not keep? But I'm like a frequent committer. Like I'm the one who has like a hundred commits on their PR and has to wash them all <laughs> into one because yeah, I, well, I, one time I was coding and I, my computer died and I lost all of my code and I hadn't committed it. So I have that like trauma ingrained yeah. in my brain. So like, I want to yep. say I commit every 15 minutes, just like out of assurance, like <laughs> just out of like anxiety, like I'm going to commit right now. Whatever I did is saving. Like, uh, just, yeah, I feel like it's, it's really anxiety induced rather than like, maybe that's how I normally am. <laughs> well, I think ev- everyone, everyone learns from not saving uh, at some point. Although it's, it's interesting as I observe generational change and I, I do claim my mainframe, her- a proud mainframe heritage here, um, is that firstly, autosave has become a thing for many interfaces these days. So people don't even have to think about it, which is pretty radical for someone of my generation. But I, I knew I was getting old in IT when people were asking me, what's that little square thing that you have to press to save your file? And I'm like, it's a floppy disk. And they're like, what's that? And it's like, wow, the interface metaphor has uh, not kept up with the current generation. Okay. I actually still understand that metaphor because I was a part of that generation when you I had to I wasn't saying like it was save. you. I wasn't saying it was you. Well, sometimes <laughs> maybe I am a little young, but I still had to save. And obviously using Git, like, you're not, yeah. you don't uh, get out of auto saving. You have to save. You, you have, have to, to commit save, exactly. And you have to push it. And oh, you know, you could, you could do worse, right? You could commit the code and then you could not push it and your laptop could die. And then you still lost yeah, that's it. that's true. Yeah. Like you're still it's screwed. still gone. Yeah. <laughs> Goodbye. And that was it. Can't get it back. <laughs> what do you do? Are you like an over committer or do you only commit? Like no, one? I'm, I'm an, I'm an under committer. Um, oh. again, because in, Back in my day, when I was developing, issues? we didn't we didn't have these fancy schmancy things like uh, SVN and and Git and, and the like. It was very uh, very much more rudimentary. Do you have commitment um, issues? <laughs> de- definitely not. My <laughs> wife will tell you I'm very committed. Um, Just but, not with uh, Git. But it, when when it comes to code, yeah, it's 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 not a muscle I have. I I do commit in Git, but not as frequently as I should. And I was actually going to ask you this topic: comments in your commits. I've seen many different approaches. What do you do? This is a really interesting one. So there's this book called Clean Code. And um, if your team has read it, then you generally feel a certain way about comments. I would say I was trained Mm -hmm. into feeling this way. Like I didn't immediately feel this way. So I like to comment my code because I like, well, at least if it's not clear, I like people to try to understand it. But the point of Clean Code is to say, 
you should be writing code that's so readable that you shouldn't actually need a comment. And if you need a comment, it's because you took a dependency on something that's not readable and it's not really your fault that you have to explain it, basically. So I kind of operate on that now to appease the members of my team. And so I would say there are not a lot of comments in my code, but if I'm by myself, um, there's probably more comments to just, you know, kick my memory into action with why the heck I did this, because otherwise I won't remember. And, and the why you did it, I think, is actually a really interesting thing, because there's a few parts of that. Because uh, on the one hand, I agree, good-looking code is easy to read. You understand you know, the, the documentation is the code. Right. Um, that said, um, there are some stylistic things that people do that I know I find really hard to read. Yes. Which can make it more complicated to figure out what they actually meant. But, but you're right. The, these days, more often than not, because I'm not in the same project all the time, um, the code is to remind me what the hell I was thinking when I did that. It's kind of like, um, you know, future Simon sometimes likes present Simon and sometimes hates present oh, Simon. I so feel um, that. I so feel that. <laughs> I feel so seen right and, now and so when, when I think, I, when I think to myself, I'm never going to have to write this down. I'll know what to do next time I come back to it. It's like, no, Simon, uh, you need to, to do even simple stuff. Like if I've got something I need to deploy that has a few maybe nuances to the deployment flow, a simple deploy.txt in the, in the directory just gets me out of jail every single time because these are things I surely I'll remember what I did last time this time, but I don't. Um, so yeah, writing it down. What about the reverse of that? In the one place. Like sometimes I feel like I hate myself, right? Like my past self, but then sometimes I am my biggest fan. Like I feel like my GitHub is oh, like, yeah. I'm a huge fan of my own GitHub. <laughs> like, yes, Absolutely. I love sometimes, that code. Sometimes past, past Nikki can be the hero to, yes. to future Nikki or current Nikki. You save the day on the, on the reverse side of that. So you're not always <laughs> the villain in the story. But I think that's, that's, that's where experience comes from in terms of figuring out what to do for your own workflow that, that, gets you out of a jam later on. And I think one of the, the best things to do when you're starting out in development, I know this worked for me, was was finding a mentor who who was on the team I was working on and, and was like streets ahead of how I could code. And and they helped me so much with just the the meta of it all. Because the reality is in your lifetime, and you're a testament to this, you've got like, what, five different languages going at one time. <laughs> the languages will change, the ideas will change, the idioms will change, the the, the best practices will change. But the meta of it all doesn't change. That's correct. And so spending the time on the meta is where you get the, the longevity in your career. Yeah. Yeah. Because patterns, they, they're everlasting or, you know, design patterns are everlasting or just concepts in programming. You know, they span multiple languages. I could be writing three yeah. different languages in the same day, but I can write almost the same thing in all three without even like yep. batting an eye. And that, and that you know, there's, there's a, there's a, um, uh, sort of a, a trigger for me that happens when I, I dislike when developers say I'm I'm a X developer as in a particular you know choose the language of your choice. Um, it's like you're not defined by the language you use; you're defined by your development capabilities and your knowledge of of design patterns and algorithms and and those types of things, not the language you use because the language will come and go. I will write uh, whatever you pay me to write. That's what I always say. Like <laughs> I'm the I'm the blank developer of whatever I'm being paid to to write, whatever language that is. <laughs> so that's, that's the one. There is no, I, I also agree with you though. I, I dislike when, when programmers say I'm, I only write fill in the blank X language. Cause then it's like, well, first of all, not every language fits every use case. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of use cases that I can think of where a language would not be applicable or wouldn't even come into yep. play. And then that, yep. that, and then also just like, it's just so fluid, right? We, 
there's new programming languages coming up all the time or new things or new techniques and you have to be able to adapt. And if you can't adapt, yeah, yeah. you know, you will become outdated basically. Well, I think, I think, and there's, there's a flip side to that too, is, is part of it is adapting, but part of it is also not getting swept up in the sort of the latest fashion or craze for, for its own sake. You That's know, true. Um, you know, JavaScript frameworks, I'm looking at you. Yeah, um, right. You know, there, there, there's, there's times to latch onto things and time to not to. And I think, I think your point about, you know, using the right tool for the job is, is really powerful because once you've learned multiple languages, you realize that some languages are really good at doing certain things and like you can get stuff done in like no code, <laughs> like, yeah, like yeah. just yeah, bugger all code. Um, and others, you, you would spend days and hours and plugins and everything to get it going. So true. But they have strengths and weaknesses in different use cases. So, so you know, like for me at the moment, you know, Python is my kind of go-to because it's easy. I, I, I get it. It's familiar to me. It's got lots of plugins, et cetera. But is it the best tool for every job? Absolutely. No way. You know, there's, there's times where you'd want to use Rust or Go or whatever. I mean, yeah, I, I always like to hark back to COBOL because that's where I started. You know, COBOL was great at handling financial figures with precision. You know, kind of important for that use case, you know. That was that was why it was yeah. good. Python is probably one of the only languages I I don't really enjoy writing. I have written it, but it doesn't. I don't get pleasure. I like yeah. the brackets. I'm a bracket kid. I like the the, uh, the closure. I'm happy. See, with I was it. traumatized. I was traumatized by Lisp as a graduate. Oh, really? Absolutely traumatized. So anything you know, scheme was was what was inflicted on me. And yeah, I I just can't. You know, that in recursion, it just it hurts too much. Just, 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 yeah. I've got you issues. don't want to look at my code then. I actually have you I use recursion no, quite no. frequently when it's applicable. Like it's a good tool. And it's very appropriate and super good, but I just break stuff whenever no. I do it. Well, like, you know, recursion comes into play when you do something like retries. Then it's like super handy. This is true. Super handy. Well, that, that's why, that's why it, it is important. But then, then you're assuming I'm doing error checking and validation in my code. So, you know, there might be some assumptions there. there are. That is a pain, but that only happens after <laughs> you do a test or you break something and you're like, oh, why didn't I error check there? I should have checked for an error. Well, isn't the saying that, uh, you know, 80% of coding is writing the error checking? You know, the rest is, you know, the, the, fun, the fun part, the functionality is like 20% of the time and then the rest is all the error checking, error handling, oh, so all that stuff. So true. So true. And it's not as fun for whatever reason. It's so much less fun. No, <laughs> it is not as fun. But I'll tell you what is fun, just to close out on this particular topic, is the absolute joy of saying, I'd like to make something that does X and being oh, able to do it. Yes. It is like the most wonderful thing. And, and, and the thing that you know, I often talk to my wife about because she sees me coding away and I'm bashing my head against the desk and struggling and fighting and all this sort of stuff. You know, it's the, <laughs> the usual developer yeah. experience. But then there's that brief joy of it. I got it to work and it's doing what I want. It's so yes, worth it. Yes, it feels, uh, it's like some kind of power that you have that you're wielding. Like you feel like you're on top of the world. <laughs> Behold, unlimited I call power. that um, hitting, the, hitting your head on the desk part, writer's block. So I'll just like take a walk and be like, I have writer's block right now, <laughs> which like isn't yeah, really writer's yeah. block, but it's like my version of it. Like I have no idea what I'm doing and I'm stuck. <laughs> I need to go for a walk. I think going for a walk is a great idea. The, the other one is the debugging duck. So actually during, during lockdown, we had a, a hackathon for the whole team, but it was Whoa. virtual. And so we sent everyone a, a little rubber ducky because one of the best things to do, particularly when you're developing on your own, is when you're dealing with a problem, maybe like the problem you were discussing earlier on today, explaining it to the rubber duck out loud, besides making you look like a complete lunatic, 
often you'll be halfway through explaining going, oh, of course. You know, just articulating it makes a difference. That's so such the, a good idea. Rubber duck debugging is a good technique. I need technique. a rubber duck now. I have to oh send my. you a duck. I was trying to write it on a piece of paper and like explain it on a piece of paper of like, where am I? What am I doing? Who am I? I need a map. <laughs> Who am I? <laughs> yeah. What year you is know, it? You, when you get so far down the rabbit hole, you're just like, who am I? What am I doing? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's why, you know, and it's good. That's, that's, and they, again, that's, that's that experience coming through is that self-awareness to say, okay, I'm going to stop digging that hole. Um, and I'm just going to get some stuff done. And often, Often it's even as, as extreme as I'm going to stop working for the day. Oh, yes. I'm going to go finish my day. I'm going to you know, go to bed, have a sleep, wake up, have a shower. And you're standing in the shower going, oh, of course, that's what I should. And you could have spent eight hours for going <laughs> sleep and not got to that point or had a beautiful night's sleep and got okay, the Okay, the anyway. shower and the dream discoveries are the best for me. I'll either dream and code and I'll... <laughs> I'll come up with a solution upon wake up and I'll be like, that's it. Or exactly. I'll be in the shower and I'll be thinking about it and it'll just come to me and you're like, yes. Yes, <laughs> exactly. that's it. <laughs> you sound ridiculous in the shower, but it's, uh, it's a magical moment. Yeah. Well, you know, we're, we're developers. We're, we're ridiculous. The nights I dream things. in code are the best because I always come up with the answer. <laughs> what IDE do you use when you dream? It's not, I'm never really in an IDE. I feel like I'm like in a terminal and I somehow like come up with the answer. Like I can just see oh, the code and it. I'm just like, I yes. I love it. It's very Tron-like. <laughs> well, it's not like, it, I don't know. Maybe it's just like, I don't know where, I don't know what IDE. I mean, maybe I'm in VS Code. It's just like black file and I'm writing in green text and then I have the answer. Mm. Yeah. Maybe it's more uh, sort of, uh, you know, neo style. I feel like I'm in my terminal <laughs> when I'm doing it, but I don't think I'm in my terminal. Yeah. It's okay. No, oh, the terminal's where all the good right? stuff happens. Hey, Nikki, where do people find you uh, to distract you from your coding travails? Please distract me today. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is knee, like your knee, and a key, 23. That's K-N-E-E-K-E-Y, 23. I love answering all of your DMs and all of your feedback and messages about the podcast. I try to take them all into account as much as I can. So please reach out if you have feedback for me or Simon or the podcast in general. I will relay it to the appropriate channels. That is true. We, we share all the information. AWS podcast at amazon.com is another place to do it. If you're email persuaded, uh, you can also leave audio feedback on our webpage as well. Link in the show notes. And Nikki, great to talk to you again. Oh, really great to talk to you, Simon. It was really enjoyable. Likewise. And I'm everyone. we didn't battle. Yeah. About tabs versus spaces. We're not talking. I'm not talking about that. Told you we're not talking about that. And thanks everyone for listening. It really is great. Tell someone you know about the podcast if they're not aware of it. It's the way that the word spreads. And until next time, keep on building.